So tonight we're looking at Paul on trial before the Roman procurator Porcus Festus as recorded in Acts of the Apostles chapter 25. I've got three points tonight. The first is Paul in a two-year lockdown. The second is that the Jews haven't forgotten Paul. And the third is about the nature of the unbelief of the Jews. Now, Paul's two years in lockdown, starting in June AD 57, the previous Roman procurator Felix holds Paul under arrest in Caesarea after taking him into protective custody when the Jews were trying to kill Paul four times in Jerusalem. Acts 24-27 says that after two years, Porcus Festus succeeded Felix and that Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favour, left Paul bound. That is, he left Paul in prison. Now, as verse 23 says, Felix ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. And we know from Acts 21 verse 8, and verse 16 that Philip the evangelist, his four daughters and other Christian disciples lived in Caesarea at that time. So we presume that these, along with some of Paul's travelling companions like Luke, Timothy, Sepater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica and Gaius from Derby and Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus, are supporting Paul while he is in Roman custody in Caesarea. Now, they, they might not all have been there for all of the time, but certainly some of them will have supported Paul throughout that two-year period. So, what does Paul do during these two years of lockdown? Well, there's nothing explicitly stated uh, here in Acts 24 and 25. But we know from Paul's previous writings and from his later writing, we can see what Paul does in similar situations. So the first thing is Paul's concern for the churches, which drives him to intercessory prayer. Uh, we know that he feels the burden of the churches since he had written one year previously in 2 Corinthians 11:28. besides everything else, says Paul, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And when he was in a similar custody in his first imprisonment in the city of Rome, uh, about 80 months late, later in AD 61, Paul told the Colossians that he was concerned for them, that he was contending for them in prayer and trying to encourage them. He was feeling so much for them, that he writes in Colossians 2.5, though I am absent from you in the body, I'm present with you in spirit. So Paul's in lockdown is, is, is not free from the concern of the church, in fact is burdened with it, and it drives intercessory prayer for them. The second thing that Paul does uh, during imprisonment during his lockdown, is he tries to encourage others through writing. We know that in his imprisonment, his first imprisonment in the city of Rome, 
uh, which lasted a similar period, two years from AD 60 to 62, and that's recorded in Acts 28, and uh, God willing we'll get to that portion of uh, the Bible uh, maybe next year. Paul wrote at least four letters to Christians. He wrote three to the Christian churches, you know, Ephesians, Colossians and Philippians, and he also wrote a letter to the individual Philemon. Probably Paul wrote much more than just the letters we have preserved in our Bibles today. And so almost certainly in this earlier imprisonment in Caesarea, he wrote letters of encouragement to churches and individuals, perhaps in answer uh, to letters that they sent him with questions and pleas. So Paul has got the burden uh, for the churches, which drives intercessory prayer, and he's trying to encourage churches and individuals by writing to them. And thirdly, we see that Paul does Bible study to encourage and strengthen himself. And we see Paul do this in AD 67, which is eight years after this time of the Caesarean lockdown, when Paul is in his final imprisonment in the city of Rome. And he writes to Timothy, as recorded in 2 Timothy 4.13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now the scrolls may well have been Old Testament books on a roll. The parchments are flat sheets in a book-like form and they were either already written, perhaps with uh, portions of the Old Testament, perhaps with copies of Paul's letters that he's previously sent to churches, or perhaps they were blank for Paul to use to write more. The idea is that Paul is studying the Bible and writing to the church some encouragement. Now, Paul, you're an apostle and you've been taught the gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Surely you don't need to read the Bible, but he does and he delights in it. Therefore, what about you and what about me? Have we cared enough for others during our time of lockdown that we've prayed for them? Do we care enough for others to practically encourage them? And do we care enough about ourselves to feed our souls from the Word of God? How have I been during lockdown? How have you been during lockdown? It's not too late to do others good. The second point is that the, the Jews haven't forgotten Paul. Festus has just arrived as the new Roman procurator. Now Judea is a notoriously tricky province to rule. Jerusalem is a powder keg uh, of religion and insurrection. And that as Festus arrives in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders haven't forgotten Paul. And one of the first things they ask the new procurator is to make him attempting offer. Festus, you can do us a great favour if you pass over this troublemaker Paul to us. He's been sat locked up in the fortress of Caesarea Maritima for two years. 
fast as they say you can get in with us and we will make your lot here much much easier if you just hand over this troublemaker Paul to us. Now Festus is cautious, he knows the law and he respects it and he wants to hear the charges that have been uh, brought against Paul and he wants to hear the evidence against Paul. So rather than going for the easy option of just handing Paul over, Festus sticks to upholding the law. As Festus later recounts the King Agrippa in verse 16, he says, I told them it's not the Roman custom to hand anybody over before they've faced their accusers and had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. And also in verse 4, Festus is recorded as saying, Paul is being held in Caesarea. I'm going there soon. Come with me and press your charges there and then. It's good, isn't it? when leaders don't succumb to political pressure or lobbying, but rather they do what is right and uphold the law. And Festus acts very promptly. In verse 17, uh, it's recorded, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. And so we have to give Festus credit for his integrity, his diligence and respect for the law. Indeed, Festus does want to do the Jews a favour, but not by violating the law. Now, we all love court dramas, especially when the stakes are high. Uh, and it tells us that 10 days later, in Acts 25 verse 6, Festus went down to Caesarea and verse 7 says that when Festus had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul. And Festus is serious about formally judging Paul. The next day, sitting on the judgment seat, uh, like a magistrate today in all his robes and surrounded by all the court officials, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now this is no fireside chat with Paul, but it's a full legal process. And if Paul is declared guilty, he will die. And we can see uh, in what Paul says in verse eight, that the charges that he's accused of are the same charges that the Jews brought two years earlier in Paul's trial before Felix in this very same courtroom is recorded in Acts 24 verses 5 to 8 and the charges are threefold and any one of them if proven carry the death penalty. In verse 8 it says that Paul answered for himself neither against the law of the Jews that is Paul is charged with heresy nor against the temple that is Paul is charged with desecration nor against Caesar that is Paul is tried with treason have I offended in anything at all? But as the end of verse 7 says, the Jews could not prove their charges. Indeed, Festus says in verse 18 that the Jews did not speak of the crimes he had ex expected, but rather, verse 19, their focus 
was disputed points of all the religion. All the evidence the Jews brought against Paul was issues to do with the interpretation of the Bible, that is, the Old Testament. And in fact, verse 19, Paul does say, uh, rather Festus does say, that Paul spoke about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When did you, when did I, last speak with anyone about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? It is, after all, both the central truth of the Gospel and the greatest miracle in the Bible. And whether the coronavirus gets us or not, we're all still going to die. And so the issue of the resurrection is vital. It will affect us all. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And as a result, do you and I believe that we too shall be raised from the dead. It was an important issue for them 2,000 years ago and it's still an important issue for us today. Now the, the Jews couldn't prove the charges against Paul but they still wanted him and Festus passes the book to Paul. Verse 9 says, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favour said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? So Paul had been charged once, the trial had once before Felix two years ago on these charges. He's just been tried a second time in front of Festus uh, and the charges couldn't be proved and he's now been asked to stand trial a third time on the very same charges but this time in Jerusalem. And Paul points out, verse 10, I am now standing before Caesar's court, which is where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself very well know. Why, so why should Paul be tried yet again, when he has, at that moment, just been tried in Caesar's court of law, and in fact been cleared of all charges? In, in verse 18, Festus admits to King Agrippa that Paul was not guilty of any crimes. And Paul sees the pressure Festus is under. But Paul also knows that the Jews will kill him the minute he is under their jurisdiction or if they can just get physical access to him for long enough. Paul says, Acts 25, 11, the second half of the, the verse, if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. Now Paul has not found justice in these last two years of being under house arrest in the Roman city of Caesarea. He now hasn't found it under two successive Roman procurators of Judea. He certainly won't find it when surrounded by a hostile crowd in the heartland of Jewish zealotry back in Jerusalem. Just recall that the chief priests had used the crowds in Jerusalem to intimidate a previous Roman procurator, one Pontius Pilate, so much that he had the innocent Jesus publicly executed by crucifixion. That's in Mark 15, 9 
to 15 and elsewhere. So Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen and he appeals to Caesar in verse 11. If he is to be tried again, Paul knows that he will only get a fair trial if it's held far away from the heat of Jewish zealotry and intimidation. It will have to be held in Rome. After Festus checks with his legal team, verse 12, Paul's right for a tr as a Roman citizen to be tried by the civil authorities in Rome is confirmed. Paul's trial is closed and Paul's appeal for his freedom will go all the way to Rome. As we think about this, we, we ought to pray constantly for our leaders and all those in authority that they do what is right, what is according to the law and not submit to pressure groups. Now, the unbelief of the Jews, it's amazing, isn't it? What was unique about Christianity that these uh, ancient Jews hated? And they so hate Paul, its chief promoter amongst the Gentiles and the Jewish synagogue in the Gentile world. Why don't the Jews believe? They have the scriptures. And as Jesus said, it's these which contain the words of life and which speak about himself. Well, the issue is the nature, the work and the person of the Messiah. First of all, the nature of the Messiah. These ancient Jews expected a great political leader, not a religious leader. The Old Testament speaks of one who is of King David's line and who will sit on David's throne. So just as King David was a great military and political leader, the Jews assume that the Messiah will be a military and political leader. And that's what these ancient Jews were looking for. And it's what present day Jews are still uh, looking for. However, they're in the wrong. In John 18, 36, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The Messiah is preeminently a religious leader. That Jesus of Nazareth was not a military or political leader is a big problem for the Jewish high priests and members of the Sanhedrin. In New Testament times, they hoped the Messiah would rout the occupying Roman army and establish Israel as an independent nation state. That Jesus of Nazareth was not a military or political leader, but a religious leader is a big problem for them. Secondly, the work of the Messiah. Worse still than Jesus being just a religious leader was in being a crucified Messiah. This makes what was a big problem for these Jewish leaders into a huge problem. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, a, a stumbling block is something that prevents progress. And these Jews can't move forward on the subject of Jesus being the Messiah. The stumbling block is an obstacle to their progress. It's an impediment to belief and understanding. And Jesus being crucified 
prevented the Jewish authorities from accepting him as the Messiah. What is stopping you or me from moving forward with faith in Jesus? The Jewish priests and members of the Sanhedrin, they knew the Old Testament. For instance, they knew Zechariah 3.9, where the Lord Almighty prophesied that he would take away the sin of the nation in just one day. And they also know Zechariah 13.1, where it says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. And this is the great work of the Messiah, to cleanse them and us, you and me, from our sins and impurity. And Jesus did this by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 on that cross in our place, taking the punishment that was due us. And this became a stumbling block for the Jewish leaders. Is it a stumbling block for you too? Or is Jesus being the Messiah who uh, makes offering, a sacrifice for our sins on that cross? Is that the key that brings salvation to us? And then the third issue was the person of the Messiah. The idea of a religious leader who would suffer to atone for his people's sin was hard for these chief priests to accept. But what they would absolutely not accept was a Messiah who was God in the flesh. This was despite the testimony of the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 speaks to us of someone who reigns on David's throne, the Messiah, someone who is both God and man, someone whose kingdom is never ending. These are familiar verses to us, often read at Christmas. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And then this Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, and verses like Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, out of you shall come the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Clearly speaking about the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, having been in existence from everlasting, God himself. The Jewish leaders were experts in the Old Testament, but they were stuck on verses like Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they were blind to the testimony of other verses. Are we like that? Am I like that? Are you like that? Do we major on one or two verses 
and exclude all the others from our thinking and so as a result have wrong views about God and his Redeemer. So these Jewish leaders could not accept Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah of God who leads his people to salvation through his atoning death on the cross and subsequent bodily resurrection from the dead. Now the leaders had lost touch with both their God and their people. There's no self-reflection in these Jews who were in authority in Jerusalem at that time. Certainly they handled the word of God daily. But as Jesus said of the Pharisee in Luke 18 verses 9 to 12, they were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And these unbelieving Jews, they don't show the mark of having dealings with a holy, righteous God who cannot look upon sin. It's not about your religious knowledge. It's not about your religious observance. Rather, it's about your personal relationship to God. It's about the heart and always has been. These Jews should know this if they'd read and contemplated the meaning of the scriptures. They were going through the motions of a formal religion and their hearts were far from God. Paul wrote in the winter of AD 56-57, about two years before this time of lockdown in Caesarea, he wrote in Romans 11:7, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. They dealt daily with the word of God, but they were hardened rather than being melted. By contrast, many of the common Jewish people in New Testament times were ripe to hear about repentance. Just look how they responded to John the Baptist. It says the whole of Jerusalem went out in the, into the desert to hear him. And what did John the Baptist preach about? He preached about repentance and putting your faith in the coming Messiah. As we deal with the word of God, hopefully daily, does the glory of God's goodness, righteousness and holiness cause us to fall on our knees? Are our hearts melted? Does the word of God cause us to beat our breast and acknowledge our terrible sin? 
Does handling the word of God bring us continually to repentance as we see our total inadequacy before a holy God? Do we know that we must depend upon God himself to save us? Do we continually cast ourselves upon God's love for sinners as shown in his Messiah, Jesus Christ? That we may know Jesus Christ and the righteousness from him by faith so that we may obtain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's sing a hymn.